0: Please go ahead. Bibles to Philippians chapter one. Uh, Very grateful for the opportunity to spend the day with you. Um, Not only this morning a little bit to talk about Poland, but uh, for the opportunity this afternoon uh, to sit down and eat a meal together and and talk. Um, I feel we feel a great gratitude for our partners in the USA. Uh, church planting in another culture is such a huge task that it can't be one individual, it can't be done by one family. It requires us to partner together, to each of us play our part, to send a family to another culture, to live there and take the gospel there. Um, we have our part in going, and we couldn't do it without your part in all of that, praying for us and financially supporting us. So... um very grateful for this partnership and for the opportunity we have today to uh, spend some time with you it's my great desire that you by the end of the day feel that you know understand better what we do there in poland um philippians chapter one uh (coughs) i have lots of favorite chapters in the bible Um, (coughs) my i have three daughters I get the opportunity for many years to be not only their father, but their pastor. They've heard me preach probably not hundreds, but thousands of sermons. And uh, a couple years ago, after I was preaching, one of them came up to me and said, Dad, when you were preaching today, that passage that you preached from, you claimed that that was your favorite passage. But you've said that before about other passages. How are we supposed to understand that? And uh, we're going to have to add to that list of passages, Philippians chapter 1. It's just a great chapter. Paul um, obviously loves the congregation in Philippi. And in the chapter he expresses to them his great love for them, his desire to care for them well. And he does something that's kind of unique. He opens up with them and shares with them difficulties in his life he He tells them about his own suffering, and uh I find that very interesting. Um, when i'm in the States and I have the opportunity to report to our supporting churches about how things are going in Poland, I feel sometimes uh that I could go one of two ways, like I could talk about the The successes in Poland and the victories and and the good things that have happened over the years. Or I could talk about the great struggles and the difficulties and the things that have not gone the way we would have hoped they would go over the years. And and it would be fair for me to talk about either one of those things because they've happened. I was at a missions conference a couple months ago and I was sharing that sort of concern with one of the other brothers at the conference and he said, don't be ashamed to talk about those things, those difficulties, those, those trials in your life, the suffering, because he said, he listed a couple reasons, but one of them was he said that um, that helps other people to feel that they're not alone. So each of us have some difficult things that we're going through. All of us have some suffering, some trials in our life. And you can come to a church on Sunday morning and look around and see other people who put on their Sunday best and they have a smile on their face. And you can feel like, ah, I don't really belong here. These are people who've got it all together. They don't have the sort of difficulties in my life that they don't have those sorts of difficulties that I have. Um, So he encouraged me to go ahead and talk about difficult things because we all have those in our life including the Apostle Paul. And in this chapter, he opens up and talks about uh, some of the struggles that he's going through. We have um, a bit of an introduction. The first, like, 11 verses of the chapter, he expresses his love for them. Then verses, like, 12 through 28, he gets autobiographical and talks about his imprisonment and his suffering. And then the last few verses of the chapter, he gives them a couple commands. I think it could be viewed as one could be broken down and viewed as a couple. Um, Let me read the whole chapter. Philippians chapter 1, starting in the first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or else I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray one more time, quickly. Thank you, God, for your promises that when we gather together, you meet with us. We want to declare once again our complete dependence on You. We need You now. God, um, You know our hearts. You know what needs we have. And we pray, God, that You will use Your holy word to meet our needs. Please do Your work through this chapter in our hearts now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A baker bakes, a sailor sails, a farmer farms. Who you are affects what you do. In the beginning of these letters, Paul wants to talk about identity. In Christianity, our actions flow out from who we are. So it's essential that we have a clear understanding of who we are now in Christ. That we know our new identity. Paul introduces himself in the first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants. That's the word he chose to use. I don't think there's many people in our culture, in our setting, that are going to start their introduction with a word like that. Doesn't it seem that every occupation these days has a really impressive title? No matter what you do, the title is really impressive. We hear people describe themselves as director, manager, executive manager, team leader. CEO, we want to use these sorts of words to describe ourselves. And Paul starts off his introduction with, hi, I'm a servant. Right from the first verse, we see something that's shocking. But our translation of the word he uses doesn't help us see how shocking it actually is. Because the word he used here is clearly slave. In the Roman Empire, in the first century, the difference between being a free man and a slave is incredibly important. It's the first and most important factor of determining the status of this person that you've now met. One man is a free man. Another is a slave. And Paul wants everyone to know from the first verse that he doesn't see himself as being free. His life doesn't belong to himself. He's been purchased with a great price. He sees himself as one who's under authority. He receives his orders from another. He has a Lord who's over him. The words in the Bible matter. And the word slave that we see in verse 1 is worth all of us meditating on. In the very same verse, we have the extremely important word slave saint. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The word saint means set apart. There are all the people of the world, and then there's a category of those who've been set apart. They're set apart to God, to be His special people. They've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're not common. They also are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, but they're also called sons and daughters of God. And we'll see that they're set apart for a purpose, for a mission. They play a unique role in God's plans for this world. Paul calls the congregation at Philippi, normal people, a normal congregation, he calls them saints. And he goes on to express his great love for the congregation in Philippi. In verses 3 and 4, he assures them that he prays for them regularly. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. These are amazing words. Always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. We know that he doesn't just pray generally for them, like God bless them. But in verses 9 and following, we see some specific prayers that he asks God to do in their lives. That should help us to understand that as we pray for our loved ones, let's not just pray general prayers, but let's ask for God to do specific things in their life. And if you don't have an idea of what that is, we can just use Paul's. Let's look at what he prays for them in verses 9 through 11. And these are good things for us to be praying for the people that we love. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we're going to see a progression here. There's three, possibly four steps of progression in this prayer. And it all starts with love. They apparently already have this love. He doesn't pray that love would be given to them. At the moment of new birth, we're given a new heart. And one aspect of that new heart means that we begin to love things that we didn't love before. We have Jesus' heart put into us at the new birth. We begin to love what he loves. We begin to hate what he hates. But apparently, at that moment of new birth, this love that's been poured into us isn't automatically perfectly mature. Because here, Paul is praying that this love that they have would increase would mature, would grow. He writes, that your love may abound, and then he adds the words, more and more. Did you ever notice that sometimes it seems like modern Christians can paint Christianity as a sort of stoicism? That Christians should just be real steady, not have any emotional highs or lows, not be affected very much by the things that go on around us. Paul isn't asking for anything like that. He wants them to be more moved. He wants their affections to be more affected, for them to have a greater tenderness, not a weaker tenderness. And his prayer is not only that they have a greater love, but that this love would also mature. He says this, your love may abound more and more, and then these words, with knowledge and all discernment. Discernment. So we're not just to love everything more and more, but we're to discern what we should love. Because as we read the Bible, there are plenty of things that we should not love. It seems to me that our current culture acts as if love is always good and hate is always bad. But biblically, it's not that simple. Let's say that we have two women here. And one of them right now is feeling hate. And one of them right now is feeling love. Which woman is righteous? Well, that depends. We don't yet know enough information to know which one is righteous. It depends on what they're loving and what they're hating. For example, we have this verse in the Bible. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And we have this verse, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. So hating is not always bad. Loving is not always good. Paul's prayer here is very interesting. He's praying that they would love more, have a stronger, more powerful love, but he's also praying that their discernment would grow, that they would recognize what to love and what not to love. He's praying that what they love today would change. Now that's good news for us. What you love today what you like today, your preferences right now. Those don't have to be your preferences for the rest of your life. Paul is talking about something even more fundamental to who we are as people than our minds. God has revealed to us that one important aspect of the Christian life is a renewal of our minds. But Paul here is talking about something that's at a more Fundamentally deeper level than a change of our mind. He's talking about a change in what you desire, in what you like, what you don't like, what you prefer. Let's say that there's a small child who only likes French fries and ketchup, won't eat anything else. That's not good. It's not healthy. Our desire for that child is that one day they're going to have enough self control, they're going to be able to force themselves to eat some vegetables eat some dairy, eat some meat. But that's not our ultimate goal, that they're one day going to be able to force themselves to eat some vegetables and meat. We're hoping that one day that child will enjoy vegetables and dairy and meat. When we train up our children, we're not, our goal isn't just that they will be able to grit their teeth and obey the standard. We want them to grow to love the standard, Our preferences, our tastes, can change, and in many cases, should change. I think we're too quick to give ourselves an excuse. Like, ah, reading theology books isn't for me. That's just not really my sort of thing. Or going to the small group, that's just not really my thing. Don't feel comfortable doing that. Okay, fair enough. But there's good news in this chapter. The things that you don't like today, things that are very deeply ingrained in you, in us, can change. And the progression goes on. Number three, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So your love will affect discernment, and then this new discernment will affect a change in your behavior. So that on the day when you stand before Christ, He will look at you and your life will be filled with what's called fruit of righteousness. So we see a three-step progression, a change in our heart or a change in what we love, which leads to a discerning mind, And this discerning mind is going to cause a person to change the way they use their hands, their feet, their tongue, their eyes. It will change their very life. What a beautiful prayer Paul's praying for them. A completely changed life, all flowing from a new heart. But this beautifully changed life isn't the end of the prayer. It's not the goal of all of this progression. It's the penultimate goal. Look, there's one more step in the progression. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. From the day of your new birth to the day that you will stand before your Maker, you will be gloriously transformed. Not just on the outside. Not just new actions. But from the inside out, a new heart, a new mind, and new actions. And who will get the glory for this beautiful transformation? The one who's responsible for the transformation. Is there any habit in your life that you just really feel can never change? You've wanted it to change. Maybe even for years now you've wanted it to change. You've tried before to change it, and you feel like it's completely hopeless. There's good news here. God can change sinners. God does change sinners. Only God can do it, and only He will get the glory. That's why in this chapter, Paul is praying for the congregation at Philippi. He's gone to them. He's preached to them. He's written to them. But He's not just preaching and not just writing. He's praying. He's praying, God, change them. Do what only you can do. And then may your name be praised for that good work. May you get all the credit. May you get the glory. If you're a Christian today, God is at work in your life. He's making you beautiful for your good and for His glory. That's through verse 11. Starting in verse 12, Paul explains that this glorious work that God is doing in and through His people is painful for the people. God's work in and through Paul is is nothing less than suffering. Let me read verses 12 and 13. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he says, I want you to know that my arrest and my imprisonment has caused the gospel to advance. He has such a positive look at the situation that he's in. That's fair enough for him to have. But we're free, as we read it, to notice that that's a difficult situation that he's in. He's been arrested. He's been imprisoned. Look at verse 17. The former... "...proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment." Strange verse. Apparently there are those inside the church. We're not given information if they're truly born again or not. But these are people in the church. And they're using Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity for personal gain. To somehow lift up themselves and somehow twist this all to harm Paul's reputation. Wouldn't that be quite a blow? Look down at verse 23. He says this, I'm hard-pressed between the two. Two things. Hard for me to see which one would be better right now. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that would be far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Have you ever been that low at a place when you look at your life and you're not even sure at this point if it'd be better to die or to live? Maybe you have. All of his plans have come to a screeching halt. We read about Paul in the book of Acts. He has plans. He goes to a town. He's there for just a couple weeks preaches the gospel, some people are saved, a small church is started, and he's on to the next place. We know that he'd like to get to Rome so that the small church in Rome can financially help him to get on to Spain. He's he's a mover and a shaker. You know people like this. He had plans. He wanted to get down the road and do the next thing. And all of his plans have come to a halt. He's been arrested. He's thrown in prison. He can witness, but just to these few guards that are around him. That's the setting in which Paul writes this letter. And we read these words in verse 18. I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I want that. I want whatever Paul has. In his suffering, in his plans being ruined, he rejoices. Let's look at that for a couple minutes. See if we can... Learn some things from his perspective. He immediately points out that there are two good fruits that have come from his arrest. He now has access to these guards that he wouldn't otherwise have access to. New people have heard the gospel. And then secondly, he says that because of his arrest, some other men in the church are more bold to proclaim the gospel. This helps us see the key to Paul's joy. The ultimate goal of his life is not his personal comfort or his wealth or his fulfillment, but his goal is the building of the kingdom of God. The goal of his life is the spread of the gospel. His life's mission is that Christ's name would be known and lifted up. And there's a direct link between Paul's life ambition and Paul's joy. C.S. Lewis wrote, Don't let your happiness be based on something that you can lose. Don't let your happiness be based on something that you can lose. Brother and sister, God is building His church, and He will build His church. If you commit your life to this mission, the spread of the gospel, the lifting up of Jesus Christ, then you will be able to find joy both in times of health and sickness, in times of wealth and poverty, in times of great fellowship and in loneliness. Your ambition in life is linked to your happiness. Look at the confidence that Paul has in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His hope is absolutely unshakable. He has complete confidence that Christ will be lifted up one way or the other. Either through his further life or through his death. And since Christ is going to be lifted up, Paul will rejoice. Okay, I can imagine that at this point in the sermon, someone could push back and they say, Okay, yes, but I'm not an apostle. I'm not a church planter. Paul's life is spreading the kingdom. Paul's death somehow will further the kingdom of God. But how does that apply to me? I'm just an average Christian just a normal guy. I don't see how Paul's life and his joy really applies to my life and my situation. I would respond by saying that in both the Old and New Testaments, God has clearly shown that He loves to use the young, the unknown, the weak, the sick, those who no one would expect Him to use. His kingdom will be built not through a handful of heroes in a handful of giant heroic acts. No, the kingdom of God will be built through millions of unknown Christians faithfully serving in millions of tiny ways. There are two institutions that God has ordained to build his kingdom, the family unit and the local church. Of course, it's a glorious thing when two young Christians leave their parents and plant a new Christian family. Of course, it's a glorious thing when a small group of Christians break off from a church and go off to plant a new church. But for most of us, we're already in a family and we're already in a church. The primary way that we can give our lives for the building of God's kingdom Give our lives so that Christ and his name will be lifted up is to pour ourselves into our family and into our church. Give up your life. Spend it. Pour it out for the good of your family and for your local church. This is how his kingdom will grow. It's glorious when a husband takes upon himself the responsibility of leading his family. It's a glorious thing when a wife takes up the responsibility of following the lead of her husband. Children, give up your lives to serve your parents and your siblings. These are not little, unimportant tasks, they're literally world changing. Teenager, use your life, pour it out in order to serve your immediate family. Use your tongue to encourage and offer life-giving words. Use your hands to cook and clean. Use your attitude to bring joy. Use your life for something bigger than yourself. No local church is perfect, but we're called to choose a local church, submit to the elders there, and pour ourselves into that congregation. Paul says about himself, To remain in the body is for your sake a more necessary thing. Paul says about himself, To remain in the body is for your sake a more necessary thing. That's not just true of great Christians. That's not just true of apostles. But every member of the body of Christ is essential to the health of the body. You. Your family needs you. Your church needs you. Commitment to family and the local church are the foundations of the Christian life. And in these seemingly mundane and unspectacular commitments, we join ourselves to the goal of the church of Jesus Christ across the continents and across the centuries. And we can, with all confidence, Say together with the Apostle Paul, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul talks much about his suffering in this setting. It's not true that suffering is unbearable, but senseless suffering is unbearable. Suffering for no purpose is unbearable. Christians have the ability to bear suffering with an inner peace and joy that will always confuse those around us because we know that our suffering has a purpose. It will be used by God, either for our own sanctification or for the good of His church in general. We know that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, And he would not allow suffering in the lives of his children if he didn't have good reason for it. So, we've made it through two of the three sections of the chapter. That introduction where he prays for them. Autobiographical sketch about his joy and suffering. Let's take just a couple moments to look at the third and final section. Let's look at verse 28. Maybe my favorite verse in the chapter. Verse 28 is a pretty cool verse. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. What's the clear sign? To the world of their destruction. The fact that we're not frightened in anything. That's the clear sign. The fact that we have a rock solid joy and peace in the midst of difficulties and suffering. So imagine that you're up on a hill. You're looking down to a valley and you see a battle that's about to take place. On one side, there are 100 soldiers, and on the other side, going to fight against them, are 5,000 soldiers. It doesn't look good for the 100 guys down there. But as you observe, it seems that they're not worried. They're laughing, they're joking, slapping each other on the back, happily eating the sandwiches their wives packed for them. And you begin to think, what if they know something that the rest of us don't know? as the two sides begin to draw near to each other, the hundred soldiers are still just doing fine, not worried at all. Very possibly, sooner or later, before they meet, even the 5,000 soldiers are going to start thinking, why are they so happy? Do they know something that we don't know? And the answer is yes, we do. We're not alone here in this battle. We have a father who fights for us. We're not orphans who've been left to fend for ourselves. Paul gives us an example of how to go through suffering. He's doing it right now as he's in that prison. He's saying, don't be frightened in anything. And very possibly those who are around us, in your family and friends at work, will observe your life and wonder, Where does that peace and joy come from when it seems like they're in a pretty difficult spot? Let us go into the troubles of this world with a deep and stable peace because we know that we belong to Almighty God. May our peace be obvious to those who are watching us. And let's conclude with verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you. That means something has been given to you as a gift. And then he clarifies, it's not one gift, but it's two. He clarifies, it's not because you deserve it, but because of Christ's sake, these two things have been given to you. These two things have been given to every Christian for the sake of Christ. Number one, given to you, that you believe in Him. And number two, that you suffer for His sake. If you believe in Him today, you may not be aware that that was a gift given to you by God. But that's why we have the Bible. God explains to us things that we wouldn't know otherwise. And God says, that belief that you have, that was a gift given to you. That's the sort of gift any of us would want to have. The second gift in the verse is a little bit harder to deal with. He says, just like you were given belief, the second thing that you're given is that you would suffer for him. There are those in the church who would like to try to interpret the whole Bible as if neither of those things are gifts from God. But Paul rejoices in his suffering. Why? Because he believes that not only is healing used by God, not only is wealth used by God, not only those who are strong and powerful are used by God, but our God, is a God who uses sickness and poverty as well as health and riches. Paul rejoices that his suffering is not senseless. Paul rejoices that he is being used for a great purpose. He's being used by God. He says, What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. What we read in the first verse of the chapter that Paul views his life as if he's a slave is crucial for us to understand the whole chapter. Paul looks at his life as if it's something that doesn't belong to him. A very common perspective in the culture that we live in is that everything exists for me. The money, the house, the job, the food, my school, my friends even my spouse and my children. Everything exists for me, the ultimate goal of my happiness and my fulfillment. In great contrast to that, Paul lays out in this chapter a different worldview. That the house, the school, the money, my health, my body, my time, my talents, my strength, none of it belongs to me. It all belongs to my Lord. It's to be used for him. Brother and sister. You don't exist. For one small. Personal goal. You belong to the church. The body of Christ. You've been called out from the world. To have the privilege. Of taking part in his eternal plan. That serve his glorious. Great purposes. Give your life. To this purpose. And your life will not be wasted and none of your suffering will be wasted. Let us rejoice together with our brother Paul that we're slaves of Christ. We live, we suffer, we die for the glory of our Lord. Let us stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters around the world and across the centuries and let us pour out our lives to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Let's stand together and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We wouldn't know you without your word. We thank you that you've given us uh, this chapter that Paul wrote to that congregation in Philippi, and that we can read his words, and we can learn about how we're to view ourselves in relationship with You, that each of us individually are not the lords of our own life, but we are Yours. We belong to You, and You are our Lord. And help us, God. We can't do it on our own. We pray that You would empower us through Your Holy Spirit to view our life in that way, and to pour it out, use it up, not for our own fulfillment, not for our own goals, not for our personal comfort, but that your name would be lifted up, that your church would be built, that your kingdom would grow. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.